This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Gifted and talented education, is it ultimately good? Or bad for public schools, we get into that. Plus, a season after school shootings were such a high-profile topic. How are our teachers feeling as they head back for a new school year? And finally, math anxiety. It's real, and our teachers say it's crippling. Those topics and kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers Podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Paul Donovan, it's been a while. Yes, it has. What do you teach? I am a high school and college math teacher. Elaine Jarden, you are making a career transition of sorts. What do you do in education now? I'm a school counselor now. And you used to be a teacher. (laughs) Getting ready for a new job, so congratulations. Thank you. And Bakari Uku'u, you've also made a transition relatively recently in the last year. Well, yes, uh, middle school vice principal. And you used to be a teacher as well. So they're all three educators at public schools in the Kansas City metro area. Sorry to freak you out, Bakari. I got a new job. (laughs) Got a transition that you had known about. You're hearing about it first. Uh, Let's get to our first topic on this new episode. Uh, Tracking, sorting, streaming, ability grouping, gifted and talented education schools and districts. Call it many things, but the separation and grouping of students based on their achievement or ability level remains controversial in many quarters. Take the debate happening right now in New York City, where some critics are calling for public schools there to completely scrap the city's highly stratified gifted education programs. They say the system unfairly advantages families with resources, that is, whiter and wealthier families, and is exacerbating racial and socioeconomic achievement gaps. Gifted and talented programs exist pretty much everywhere and have faced similar complaints and calls for reform for decades. And we have three educators, teachers and former teachers on this week who have, I think in some form or another, dealt with gifted and talented students, taught in gifted and talented programs, maybe not explicitly so, but um, so we wanted to know, is sorting students by ability uh, ultimately good or bad for schools Overall, And maybe first, some definitions should be in order. When we say gifted and talented education, is that different in your mind from terms like tracking or ability grouping? What would you say gifted and talented education is? So I actually did work in our district's gifted and talented department in advanced academics. And so it wasn't just about tracking students. It was actually supposed to be about identifying their key strengths and that are significantly different than their peers and supporting them in the development and um, nurturing of that gift. Do you feel like that was uh, a fair measure of, of, of the mission of the program? <laughs> I think that there it is very difficult to do that successfully. I think that, one, all students need that. And so when we talk a lot about gifted and talented education, what people are actually often talking about is just high-performing students, and that's not necessarily the same thing, and it shouldn't be the same thing because not all gifted and talented students are high achievers um, across content areas. And so but when we talk about gifted and talented, I think we often 
refer to strategies that are just best practices and, and, and good for kids in general. Yeah, Paul, Elaine, what are your experiences dealing with with gifted and talented uh, programs or, or even tracked classes, right? I mean, uh, teaching students of different ability levels in tracked classes. In the district where I currently work, they use some form of intelligence testing. I'm not sure exactly which one they're using to decide who qualifies for gifted and talented. So there's some kind of like objective measure coming like Mm -hmm. they it's couched as objective at least it's couched as objective but what's really hard is when parents will say like oh man like my kid just missed qualifying by two points and like we all know that those tests are not perfect and they're not always going to give you the same results on the different days that's an issue and then the other thing that's hard is not every kid has the opportunity to take that testing so even if we are saying this is the screener we're going to use not every kid participates in that screening process so I doubt we're identifying everybody if that's the measure we're using which I don't think is the best one. Uh, uh, Bakari back to your experiences in an actual gifted and talented department or program within your district I mean how were students sorted into that you know part of because Part of the controversy in New York City is around how Mm -hmm. students are sorted. Public schools in that city start funneling students into gifted and talented tracks at four years old. I mean, they give preschoolers a two-part test. Students who perform well can be um, launched into a years-long track of special programs, upper-level courses, culminating in a a spot at a a coveted, specialized public high school in New York City. That's maybe an extreme example, but what, what have you seen in your experiences? So my district does a universal screener for all third graders um, because one of the one of the things I know we want to talk about is just the equity in gifted and talented programs. And so that's something my district was, has always been very cognizant of and, and tried to combat um, having disproportionate numbers in gifted and talented. And so we do a universal screener for all of our third graders using the NNAT2. Don't ask me what that stands for. <laughs> um, but it's a national assessment in conjunction with several other um, assessments and test scores. And those who reach a certain benchmark are accepted into the gifted and talented program. Do you find that it is it, it is equitable or as equitable as it can be? Yes. I mean, I think it is, it is a step in the right direction toward equity just because it is universal. I think that any time we talk about having standardized tests, that, that in and of itself kind of skews equity altogether. I think there's also just a perception about behavior characteristics of students that are considered Mm -hmm. advanced. So at my school, we only offer two advanced classes in eighth grade, and that's Algebra 1 and Spanish 1. Part of the push that parents make is they want their kid in that Algebra 1 class, not necessarily because they have the math background for it, but because they want them to be with the good kids. And they want to be in a class with, quote unquote, less distractions. So it sets this notion that if you are not an advanced student, like that's the bad kids. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to be teaching those class. Like if you're teaching a regular class instead of an advanced class, like Mm -hmm. what does that say about you as a teacher, too? Because we're not putting our most talent, at least in any building I've ever taught in, we're not putting our most effective, most talented teachers in our classes of students that probably need the most Mm -hmm. support. Right. We're saying like, oh, you're this fantastic teacher. You're going to be teaching AP whatever, 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 and new first-year teacher, you haven't put in your dues, so you're teaching Mm -hmm. regular or remedial or repeater, whatever, blah, blah, blah. In our district, there are no barriers to enrollment for those advanced courses, which is good and bad. I like that it's open access, but that also means parents will say, I want my kid in this class because of a behavior thing, not because of an academic thing. So you're saying there's like a, there's a social perception both among parents and students, but Mm -hmm. then also teachers as well for the different tracks. At least in my experience, yes. I would agree. I would say the same. I mean, especially at the elementary level, which is where I spend most of my time, is that 
the students who we would identify as quote unquote gifted, we would receive pushback from their teachers because like, oh, well, they're not even reading on grade level or they're not doing this and that they can't even sit still. And and it's just understanding this assumption that gifted and talented means that you're the most well-behaved, most scholarly student Mm -hmm. ever. And that's not always the case, again, because gifted and talented does not mean that you are excelling in every academic content and every academic area, but you have some identified gifts and that you have this intelligence ability that we're trying to hone in on. I want to dig into this a little bit more. So a 2013 meta-analysis of tracking studies, so studies about this this practice of tracking, was published by the National Education Policy Center at the University of Colorado, concluded in part, and this is a quote, the expansive body of literature conclusively shows tracking has been harmful, inequitable, and an unsupportable practice. It goes on to say low-track classes tend to have watered-down curricula, less experienced teachers, to your point, Elaine, lowered expectations, more discipline problems, and less engaging lessons. So, I mean, what are the effects of track classes, not only on the, the kids who are in a higher track, but also on the kids who are in the lower track? And, and, and for a lot of schools, they're, they're, I mean, they're in the same school. They're in the same building. They're maybe even in the same hallway or next door to each other. I would actually uh, like zoom out a little bit more. I would, I, I would posit there are track schools. Mm-hmm. There are track districts, right? And so I think what happens is that we lower expectations, we, we lower the supports, and it's a matter we're just funneling kids through because we don't anticipate, we don't expect much from you, and so I'm not going to, I don't feel compelled to give you as much or to give as, as much uh, to your experience. Where those in the higher track classes, I expect more out of you, and so I'm going to continue to push you to do to go beyond and to be great. So I think that it's just a matter of the expectations, that when you track kids in those type of settings, then you you basically are give, sentencing them to a certain outcome. I also, though, on the just something else to throw in for tracking from the teaching perspective, it is really hard to teach a large mixed ability class well. Yeah. And so... Mm-hmm. I would love to say that I can teach 30 kids all at their level, but it is so much easier to say, here are my Algebra 1 kids, here are my 8th grade math kids, and at least they're closer in ability. And when I have 30 of them, it's easier to meet those needs than it would be. I would love to say, ideally, that it works, but I understand, while I don't like the outcomes of tracking, I totally understand why it's happening. Because at a certain point, you can't differentiate effectively for 30 people who run the entire spectrum of abilities. I don't disagree. I think that when I think of tracking, I think like you have your high eighth grade math and you have your low eighth grade mm-hmm. math. Like when we talk about oh. completely different content, algebra one is different than right, eighth grade math, right? And so I think that when you you take all the low kids who score below this certain point and you teach them and then mm-hmm. the other teacher, it's like that doesn't help. I think it, it goes back to like this notion of like integration. Like the pro- the reason why people advocate for integration is because it comes with more resources. It comes with more effectiveness. And so when we have a very segregated class, and not necessarily by race, but by ability level, then that's what you teach too. And you don't never you don't actually. It's more difficult to raise them up right. because your mindset is very much rooted in this is all they can do. Mm-hmm. And it's also I think inextricably linked with race. Right. I mean, generally, I'll go back to the New York example. So um, about 70 percent of the entire student population in that district is either black or Hispanic, but make up less than a third of enrollment in gifted programs. The inverse is true for Asian students in New York City. Asians make up 16 percent of overall enrollment, but 40 percent of gifted program enrollment. Um, So cutting both ways, kind of creating um, intense constituencies on either side wanting reform or preservation of gifted and talented education. So, I mean, you can't get around questions of race and, and, and who and who is enrolled or who is seen as higher track or lower track. I mean, is gifted education racist? Mm. 
That's quite a question. There. <laughs> <laughs> that, that deserves its own show, I think. Right. That, that's quite a question. Paul, what, what say you? <laughs> <laughs> well, rarely does Bakari pass up a chance to answer a question about race. I think, Are you still thinking? <laughs> I am. <laughs> I think that there is um, race involved, not in it, sort of by accident, but I think it comes out that way, and it's also, I think, um, mixed with uh, class, socioeconomic class at the same time. It used to be when I first started teaching, the upper-level classes were mostly white um, and male. That's changing. There are more and more females and more and more students of color, but there are still, students of color still tend to be more timid about it. And I kind of fell into this by accident. A a couple of years ago, I was explaining about the beginnings of math, and and I mentioned that uh, the very first methods of calculation were uh, found in Africa that black people invented math because that was those were the first tools um, calculators and I noticed that a couple of the uh, young black males in class sat up straighter mm-hmm. and uh, a couple of them kind of looked at each other and gave a nod and uh, their confidence level shot way up as soon as I just said that one sentence um, and their their grades started getting better just because I kind of, you know, like that uh, black people are in on this That one offhand comment, yeah. Yeah. I would posit that American education is racist, and because it's an extension thereof, Mm. especially because it often fails the most underprivileged and disenfranchised. So, I mean, in New York City, at least, there are some advocates pushing for an end to the city's gifted and talented education program. Others are actually arguing for an expansion of gifted and talented programs to more students, um, but is that is is that I mean, a false choice? Well, yes, because ultimately what we're advocating for is that we want all kids to have greater access to quality education. And what they're saying is that actually we're, we've only limited that the current policy is like they limit quality access to a certain type of student. And so I definitely think that it's it's not just about expansion; it's also about reform. Because what are we saying about those students who don't have those does not have access? What do we say about those students who can't go to those schools for a variety of reasons? Not just because they didn't test into it, but because they just didn't know about it, right? And so every school should be, every classroom should be a quality experience that that helps kids fulfill their greatest potential. And the fact that it's not, and it's very intentional that it's not on most fronts is a problem in and of itself. And oftentimes it continues to disenfranchise and oppress a certain type of student in American society. Do students who, in whichever way they're tracked, are they aware of like the the, the ability yes. group that they're tracked into? Of like course. if they're high achieving, yes. they know they're, they're in course. the high achieving group. From kindergarten to <laughs> 12th grade, they are very aware that the blue group is the smart group. The mm-hmm. roadrunners the, and the right, turtles? Exactly. <laughs> like they, they know, mm-hmm. they, they're, very, they're very aware. And so does everybody else. Yeah. And what, so what effect does that have on, on, on your work, on, on, their, on your relationships with them? Well, I mean, you'll hear kids say, you know, they'll be like, well, you know, I can't do X, Y, or Z thing. And you're like, well, why? And they're like, well, I'm not an impact. That's the name for our gifted and talented program. You know, well, I'm not an impact. Like, only the impact kids do that. And it's like, oh, okay. But, yeah. Yeah, you start seeing kids set boundaries for themselves mm-hmm. as how uh, how far they can achieve and what they're supposed to be able to do. And so I think if we really adopt this notion like this growth mindset, that's ultimately what we're, we're asking kids to believe in and that adults have to push is that you can, if you try with the right support, you can practically achieve whatever you want to. Um, but when we see these tracking systems, whether that's within the classroom, that 
you do small group instruction and you put all your low kids on this skill, which, again, to Elaine's point, I think there is some value there that you can really dig into the gaps those students have. But kids are very much aware, and it does start to get them to either place boundaries on them or to, to expand their boundaries because they think, oh, I'm in the high group. I can do whatever I want. I can put my mind to. Um, so it, it affects their confidence, and it, it affects their self-esteem. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Many teachers, including ours, are preparing to go back to school in the coming days and weeks. And like every year, they're thinking about their classes, their curriculums, the students they'll have. They also may be thinking about something else, school safety. It's still on the minds of many teachers, parents, and school children following last year, which saw several high-profile school shootings, most notably the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, that left 17 dead and sparked an ongoing debate about gun control. That debate got a new shot of adrenaline recently with the airing of the first episode of comedian Sasha Baron Cohen's new satirical show, Who is America, on Showtime. The first episode concluded with, I guess what you would call a startling segment in which the comedian, posing in various fake guises, including an Israeli pro-gun rights advocate, convinces several conservative political figures to endorse on camera a fake program called the Kinder Guardians. And yeah, it basically is what it sounds like. Here's former Republican Representative Joe Walsh of Illinois promoting what he appears to think is a real gun training program for young kids. The intensive three-week kindergarten course introduces specially selected children from 12 to 4 years old to pistols, rifles, semi-automatics, and a rudimentary knowledge of mortars. In less than a month, less than a month, a first grader can become a first grenader. Gifted and talented. <laughs> it, it would be yes, funny. which intelligence is that one? <laughs> it would be funny if it wasn't so terrifying. So uh, Cohen, I guess, can continue to do his gonzo tricks. But teachers, we just wanted to do a real short check-in with you because we talked about this several times over the last month or so, or, uh, over the last few months. But, I mean, how are you feeling about this whole gun control school safety conversation going into a new school year? Do you anticipate anything changing, anything being different? I don't think so. I think it's going to be more of the same. Agreed. I agree. So, moving on to the next topic. (laughs) (laughs) Let let me just try to to probe a little bit. Some new research, uh, I think, that shows parents still see this as a pretty prevalent issue. An online survey of more than 500 parents done by a group called PDK International. They do this actually every year, every few years. Done in May shows that 34%, more than a third of parents, uh, still fear for their child's safety at school. A smaller percentage, 27%, say they are actually very confident that their child's school can deter a potential gunman. Interestingly, a similar poll was done soon after the Sandy Hook shooting in early 2013, and at that time, just 12% of parents said they feared for their child's safety. So it, it, it seems like there is a growing fear and anxiety among parents uh, about this issue. Um do you feel like your parent, I mean, have you had conversations with parents that this might be something that is um, a bigger issue for them at the, at the more at the forefront of their mind than it has been in the past? 
I have not personally, but I do have uh, a friend who's a principal at a more suburban school, and he has received a lot more conversations, even in like the last week or so, about the school's preparedness to handle an intruder or to handle gun violence and that sort of thing and to prevent uh, gun violence. And so I think it, it really depends on the setting. I mean, their school doesn't have metal detectors and that sort of thing currently. My school does. Depending on the setting in which you are in, your location uh, impacts your belief. And also, I mean, I work in a traditionally urban school in that has not traditionally been where school shootings have taken place. Yeah, of the mass variety that we right. see. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I haven't heard much from parents, more from kids. Like at the end of the year, we were watching the talent show and they were just, you know, like kids behind me were just casually talking. They're like, man, like if I was going to shoot up the school, I'd do it right here, like the finale of the talent show. And kids are like, don't say that. Like, that's too scary. But, you know, like kids talk about it a lot more. Yeah. But also, I don't know that that many parents would call their kids teacher. They'd call the administrator, I would right. think. Yeah. Do you anticipate your schools and districts adding new security measures? Or even before you left last year, was there talk about doing something different going into this school year? Not until the next school shooting happens. Really? Even like even this even, even the this most recent spate didn't change anything in terms of um, what your actual policies are. They took all our doorstops away. What is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to keep Teachers your doors were so mad. Yeah. But yeah, they took, you know, because you used to be able to put your doorstop in during passing time, and then they want doors closed and locked at all times. So in the cover of night, they took everyone's doorstops, and it was a it was a federal offense. We, we <laughs> have been on the keep doors locked for a while now. Yeah. Secure entrance now where you have to get buzzed in and all those sort of mm-hmm. things, IDs and, and that such. So I don't really know what the next step will be beyond actually America doing something about gun control. Right. Right. Stay tuned. Um, (laughs) Still waiting to have a hopeful, optimistic conversation about guns in school. (laughs) Stay tuned. Yeah. We'll go to our last segment for this episode. Are you math anxious? That is, do you have overly negative emotions well up when dealing with numbers, or do you get panicky when trying to calculate exact change, or... Do you still have distinctly troubling memories of a time in elementary or middle school when a math problem led you into a pit of despair? I will say I remember a particularly emotional night when I was in seventh grade going back and forth with my parents at an increasingly loud volume over the concept of pie. I just could not accept the idea. P-I pie. I just could not accept the idea that a Greek letter represented 3.14. But I'm over it. Be that as it may, math anxiety is a concept well-documented in research, and since we have uh, two experienced math teachers on our panel this week, we thought we'd take advantage and ask, is math anxiety a thing, and can it be overcome? Hey, yes. now, I yes. taught math, too. Oh, you That's taught, because we have Just three math teachers. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry, Bakari, to leave you out. That was my gifted and talented bias <laughs> showing through. <laughs> so we have three experienced math teachers. Math anxiety is a thing. Oh, yeah. Yes. 100%. It is, yeah. and it's overused by students sometimes. <laughs> yeah. That's true, too. But how does it, and their parents. So how does, it mani- so, so how does it manifest itself in class if, if, it, if a student is math anxious? What does that look like? Shutting down, crying, acting out, you name it. They just draw that boundary of here's, mm-hmm. here's as much as I can go in math. I've, I've exceeded that, so you're asking for too much. Mm-hmm. They have boxed themselves oh, into definitely. like preconceived notions of what they're capable I'm of. I'm just not good at that, so... Well, it's interesting to hear you say that as somebody who taught elementary school, mm-hmm. that you're seeing it even that young. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. By the time they get to high school? I mean, Paul, we've already discussed in this episode, you teach you know, kids who have gotten to maybe the highest level of math they can get to in high school. Is there still math anxiety there? There is, but students tend to be able to deal with it more. The, piece, the students with 
fake math anxiety who are just looking just for giving, an out. We're looking for an out. Um, they usually don't make it. And how do you do? How do you discern between true math anxiety and the fake kind? The tears. <laughs> Where does it come from? Because you don't hear about an English anxiety. I mean, and, and it might, that might be there, but you don't hear about a social studies anxiety. Why is math anxiety a, a thing? Well, Where does it come from? I think because math is seen by a lot of people as inaccessible for a number of reasons. And it's also acceptable to not be good at math. You don't have any parents sit down across from you at parent-teacher conferences and say, you know what? I never really got past an eighth grade reading level. They do not bat an eye at sitting down across from you and being like, I never got math after the seventh grade. Worse than parents are the teachers. Mm-hmm. When All they the say, time. When they say, oh, I was never very good at math. Mm-hmm. Like um, other, like teachers of other subjects. Teachers of other subjects. Yeah. I was, I mean, I'm raising my hand right now. I, mean, I think I was, <laughs> I, I, I probably made jokes in class as an English teacher saying like, oh, yeah, I was, uh, wasn't a math major for a reason. Mm-hmm. But, right, but if I had made a joke that I'm really not very good at reading, I would probably have a meeting with the principal. Because everyone is a reading teacher. Right. Do they use that at the high school yeah, level? Yeah. That's good, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, definitely that. And anytime you need an example of something that's boring or difficult or challenging, they always default to math as that example. I would also add that I think math is looked at as like very specialized. And we have so many tools in our society to help us with math so that we don't actually have to fully understand it on our own. Mm-hmm. Or we can't say the same for all the other contents where you have to have a foundational understanding in order to operate in those. And so I think because there are so many tools to assist you to minimize your actual brain capacity to, to do the math is why we kind of opt out. And people think math is just computation. Yeah, they don't understand right. that it's a really rich discipline and computation is just one one small piece. Yeah. So what do you tell kids when they, you know, they come in with their, their preconceived notions of their ability? They say, I'm just not good at math or math just isn't my thing or I've gone as far as I can go. Um, what, I mean, what do you say? What do you what do you do to get over that? You break down those barriers. You you make it fun and interesting enough for them to really expand. And once they go once they go beyond they, where they thought they could, you just it's like teaching in general. Like when, once you take a student beyond that initial place and they start to see the the joy of learning and the joy of that content, they'll go all in. For me, it comes down to a lot of step by step encouragement. If they're doing a problem and they got most of it wrong, but they did one step right. I'll say this was a great step you made, and I'll try to focus on that more, and then little by little they'll think, oh, I did something right. And then mm-hmm. and it takes a long time, but uh, that's what I found the most effective is just to get your toe in there and and increase their, their recognition. Scaffolding, make it accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I start a lot with kids, like kids that are just like, I don't even know where to start. I'm like just start by noticing something. Like just tell me something you see. And then once you kind of get them started talking about like, oh, well, I, this and this and this, like usually they have like real idea. world experiences. Well, no, I mean, sometimes it's even <laughs> just like looking at a naked problem and they're like, OK, well, I, you know, I don't know, maybe it's something they're solving for X, whatever. You know, they'll be like, I notice like there's addition in here and there's a variable and da da da. And it's like, OK, so you do know something, even if you mm-hmm. claim to know nothing like you really do. Um, and then I think it's also great. It's not my strategy, but um my favorite, no, you throw up a kid's work or work you've made up, you know, and it's like, what did this person get right? And you point out all these things they understood. And it's like, here's the one spot where they got confused. What would you say to help them get unstuck? And kids feel really confident when they can shout out like, oh, they did this or they did this or this. You know, they all claim it's their problem, even when I made it up. Do you I mean, is is math like a 
is it seen as like an abstract thing that doesn't have any like real world I connotation? Found, I found when kids say, when am I ever going to use this? They ask because they're hoping to get you off track so that they can get out of doing something. You know, and sometimes I'm like, I don't know when you're going to use it. You're 13. I have no idea what your future holds, but mm, here's what answer. we're doing. I mean, I'm honest with them because like in the college algebra stuff where they're just trying to get it for a a credit, and I'll say, you know what, you probably never will use mm-hmm. this. I don't use this math unless I'm teaching it, and then they're like freaked out that a teacher actually said that. But then I bring it up and I compare it to to working out and weightlifting, mm-hmm. and I say, but who all lifts weights? And of course, most people raise their hands, and so I'll pick out someone and and say, hey, so do you ever do bench presses? And they'll say, why, yeah. And I said well, what's the point? When in real life do you have to lay down on your back and lift weights up and down off your chest <laughs> ten times? And they said, well, never. And then I said, so why do you do it? And then sometimes people will get it, and otherwise I'll have to, I'll have to explain it further because mm-hmm. they'll say, well, because it makes me stronger when I have to do things. And I said, that's what math is. Math is a weight class for your brain. Mm-hmm. That's and, uh I do the same thing with lunges in a football game. You know, it's like, oh, I saw you all doing lunges out there. So that's what you're going to do in the middle of the game, right? That's one of the plays. Everybody right. lunges. No. Well, then why are you doing it? Yep. <laughs> Weight class for your brain. That's a good place to end, Paul. <laughs> uh, that's tweetable. <laughs> uh, before we do kids these days, like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours, giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. I should also say this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the school's and districts they work for. Now, kids these days, Bakar, you've actually taught some summer school this summer, so you may know what kids are into. Paul and Elaine, not so much. Maybe you've been away for a while. But Bakari, what were your kids into this summer? Um, well, I said it the last time, but they were really into pools. It's very hot. Um, they were trying to convince me to go to the pool. They didn't make it to the pool. I thought I was going to let them go, but then on Saturday, You changed uh, your mind. I did. <laughs> it's all about safety. You know, I want to keep them safe. Um, but beyond that, I'm not sure. We've been out of summer school for about a month now, so I'm a little disconnected intentionally. <laughs> Elaine? So this is not current, but I was thinking about a conversation I had with my homeroom kids back in May. If I say soccer mom, haircut... What do you guys think that looks like? Like, what do you what do you picture? I think of like a bob. I don't know. Like shorter hair, right? right? Like the Kate Gosselin kind of. Okay, so kids now when they say you, because a girl came into my class crying and she's like, the kid, they're saying I have soccer mom hair, (laughs) and she had like painstakingly, she had like ringlet curls, like Shirley Temple curls, and apparently that's the new soccer mom hair at my middle Shirley school. Shirley Temple Curl, that yeah. soccer mom? Th- yeah. That's what they're using, and I was like, okay. I haven't seen those soccer moms. <laughs> I have no really, Shirley Temple curls, though. Mm-hmm. Man. Wow. It's a little old school, though. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're not into that. But at least they, I, think that's, I think that's it. It's more just like the insult. I they more cheerleader right? like, than anything. Was she a cheerleader? No. Oh. No. Paul, what are your kids into? Well, I'm not... Um, I'm not sure about my my uh, current students, but on social media, I'm friends with um, quite a few former students. And uh, one thing that keeps starting to come up, especially in this last week or two, 
is my favorite movie of 2018, um, Sorry to Bother You. And uh, and a lot of my former students, I've noticed, are starting to talk about that. Like, have you, have you seen that? It's just crazy, blah, blah, blah. And so um, it's causing a stir, and um, I'm, I'm glad. This is one of those things where I'm glad for the that they're into it these days. Is, and you are, I mean, you've seen the movie too. This is the new movie with uh, Lakeith Stanfield. Yep. And you've seen it. I have. Yeah. I've seen it. It's so my, you like it. It's my favorite movie of the year so far. Yeah. I'm going to have to check it out. Yep. Recommendation for Paul Donovan. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks to our teachers this week Paul, Elaine Jarden, Bakari Uku'u. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers.